You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome. Welcome, Father Paul. It's good to speak with you again. Good morning, Thank you Father. very much. Good morning to both of you. So, Father Paul, in between these great books and great lectures, spends a lot of time at home gathering little tiny pieces of information to see how they connect to other little tiny pieces of information. It's, as he likes to say, a long story. And what we like to do on Tarazi Tuesday sometime is zoom in on one of those little pieces of information that somehow have a ripple effect on Father Paul's view and understanding of the biblical canon. And so today we're going to talk about palash or falash, depending on how you pronounce it. Father Paul, can you talk about what this means to your argument about the rise of Scripture and what role it has to play in the total picture? Yes, definitely. It would be good to put it against the larger scenario. Palash, I discuss it in conjunction with the Palestine, Philistines. Again, you know, the real pain in scholarship, which is pseudo-scholarship, is that people try to historicize and figure out where these people were and so on, and actual individuals by that name. Now, the trouble with that is that a Semite, like me, a Semite, someone who knows Arabic, you don't need to be Semite, understands that there are no personal names. I repeated this time and again in my podcasts. It's a common name that is assigned to a person. The same thing happens in Greek, Old Greek and Latin. So to figure out the function of a word, one has to hear it in context, whether one is referring to me when one uses Nadim in Arabic, or one is referring to table fellow, or to both as a play on the word, depends on the context. (laughs) There is no Nadim per se like that. And we have lots of names among the nations where, again, scholarship at one point still is in its highest percentage trying to figure out who is who and what is what and where did this nation come from and so on and so forth. Well, in my book, The Rise of Scripture, I comment on the Toledot genealogy of Shem that the names reflect shepherdism. For instance, one of the descendants is Ru'u in Hebrew. Ru'u is the plural imperative of the word ra'a, which is shepherd or graze, which is very funny as a personal name. And then Pelik, the same thing to divide. So all the names I show, I don't want to enter into that. I want to come back to Palash, but as a background, that a hearer of the original understands that Shem is the grandfather of the shepherds, those who spread and move. Now, if one takes seriously this and one gets to the table of nations or the names of the nations that reside in the land of promise, 
one sees that they are fabricated. Let's go for the longest series in Genesis 15, 19 to 21. The land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, Jebusites could be particular and if even historical, or I mean, we don't know that it's historical or not, but it's linked to the city of Jebus that David conquered. But listen to the first three. Kenites are the descendants of Cain, Kenizzites of Kenaz, and Kadmonites is the Easterner from Kedem. And these three words appear very early in Genesis 2, 3, 4. Hittites are definitely the most solid historically. That is why they alone are mentioned at the beginning of Joshua. So it's very interesting to know all the texts. At the beginning, Father Mark, you said that Father Paul sits down for hours to figure out things. It's just I go to scripture. Suddenly, the only name that is mentioned in Joshua is the Hittites, that they are far away and they are part of the purview of the writer. But Perizzite is from a verb that until now, in Arabic, it means to allot, to divide a piece of land. It has the connotation of spreading. Now, in conjunction with that, I would like to comment on palash, which has the same connotation. Until now, yesterday, I was sharing with a friend that in Arabic, just hear it, hear it. Okay, you put a set of cards and so on on the table and someone would like to see them more clearly. That person would tell you, flishun, flishun, scatter them, open them, unglue them from one another. And the interesting thing is that this root is also in the literary Arabic. I mean, the spoken Arabic is very much related to the literary Arabic. And it is used that you open up you spread, you make things appear on a broader area scale. And if you apply this to the Philistines, the Hebrew word is the same root as palash. And by the way, in the Bible, you have places where falash, there is no need to enter into detail here for the hearer, because if the hearer does not have the text in front of them, you know, they won't be able to follow. But I hope one can trust me on that, and those who know Hebrew can check, is that it is used in this sense. Now, if we read this in conjunction with kaftor, which is the locality where the Philistines came from, according to Amos chapter 9. And people until now don't know where to put it. They put it in Egypt, they put it in Cyprus, they put it in Crete, they put it in Anatolia. But the interesting thing is that two of these places, Cyprus or Crete, are in the Mediterranean, are the domain of the Greeks. And Anatolia at one point was conquered by Alexander the Great and so on. And they settled, you know, in the Pentapolis along the sea. That's why one would assume that they came from somewhere in the Mediterranean. But that, according to me, reflects precisely the interest of the writers, and we talked about that, who were writing at the time of the successors of Alexander. You know, Alexander came over from outside to take the area of the writers. And this is how the Philistines are presented. Now, for me, the second step is just 
logical in which sense not logical according to the assumptions of scholars but logical according to the text you have a little guy whose name is david and who was just a shepherd he didn't have an armor he didn't have arms he had only a sling which shepherds use and in a personal combat which was the tradition in those times you know in order not to you know butcher so many people you have the two heroes fighting one another he destroys goliath the philistine i mean trying to figure out that there was a giant called goliath and the philistine and so on it doesn't make sense it's fabricated by the author and in my mind goliath is very clearly alexander the great that came down and you remember when on purpose although he was in a hurry to conquer the east he spent time to conquer tyre which was an island an island fortress this was the message to everybody in the area you know i'm going to get you wherever you are historians and scholars speak about the conquest of tyre in these terms it's a message you send to everybody else but then you have a shepherd who takes care of him with no problem now am i overdoing it no anyone who has read my commentary on ezekiel and this was my first commentary on the prophets very important you have a chapter speaking about god being the shepherd of his people and then immediately israel becomes an army that puts under check gog of magog again the verb reflects meshek and so on the spreading the stretching and i explained there that it reflects the power of the times which is the macedonians the seleucids the same happens at the end of daniel again now this army is made of sheep that's the funny thing and yet it's powerful because its leader is the shepherd that is obviously a message to try to figure out historically where and who and what it's nonsensical for someone who knows the original language and listens to scripture in the original language and the original language again as i explained it's not the common hebrew of today in israel no 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 it's scriptural hebrew you have to know how the word appears so this is how i approach parash and pelishtim and the philistines that they reflect the outsiders that came from the sea and thus alexander and his heirs you remember how we have the story of samson and the philistines then saul and the philistines so it's a big issue it's not that they are like the perizzites or the kenites they appear and disappear no they are extremely functional actually they are functional in the rise of the blasphemous kingship in israel and judah they pressured the people who decided to go for a king in 1 samuel 8 so discussing palash and pelishtim is much more pregnant than discussing kenizzite and kadmonite and kenites however it's very important to discuss all the names so that the hearer would be convinced this is what i usually refer to as the cumulative argument i remember tom dykstra you all know him you know and he wrote his book on uh, paul and mark uh, this is the big 
difficulty he had with me at the beginning until he realized that in literature you cannot say this is so and this is not so you need a cumulative argument if it appears here and there and there and there and there then at the end you say my gosh the author is really trying to play on these terms so that's why it is painful and people have to put some efforts again to jump to my books when people ask you know sometimes they are difficult well difficult yes i mean people have to put some effort in trying to understand because i don't want to say what i want to say and make it on their level so that they would comprehend but if what i'm saying is incorrect it has no value that is how i see it's a story one has to hear it in the original because of the word play my classic example let me say it here on the podcast saidna philip may he rest in peace my bishop used to hail me when i would see him two three times a year welcome to my nadim now my nadim you the listeners would say that he is saying my nadim the way you would say my richard an extra loving connotation but that is not true those who know arabic and understand that he is playing welcome to my table fellow now the power in that is that my name happens to be nadim and the example i give in my book is about a grandmother who sees her granddaughter coming to her and she tells her my hope now she could have used this expression even if the girl's name was not hope but if the girl's name happens to be hope then you see the connotation it is much more powerful that the girl is enacting the meaning of her name and then i give another example about a grandson whose name is victor welcome to my victor so this is how one should approach scripture and the more examples one gives the more powerful and i have a lot of examples take for instance kenites and kenizzites you have connection kenan is connected to cain and so on who disappears from the first genealogy and appears in five anyway i have to refer the people to my book but before ending let me mention a very interesting name which is the hivites no the hivites in the original is hiwim here again hiwim from the verb hawa which means to encompass as in an enclosure and thus even scholars say you know this name refers to the dwellers of tents so they are not a people that came from somewhere and this is mentioned generally by scholars who even historicize other names but then this is already the achilles heel of the historicizing approach if regarding this name you really playing on the original meaning why wouldn't one do it also with the other names now i've opened the bible works here and when i put a search on hivites most of the time by far most of the time it appears in conjunction with perizzites and immediately after it and earlier i mentioned to you that paraz faraz is from the verb that means to allot 
to divide and thus to spread out. Now, it's interesting that someone would tell me, but to spread out is the opposite of to encompass. But my dear friend, that is the power of literature, that they are using two words that reflect shepherdism. Shepherds and the sheep go out during the day to eat, and then at the end they come all together at the same place. I wanted to end with this, to leave my hearer with this impression. Even when your ear and your mind perceive a contradiction, the contradiction lies in your perception and not in what the author is saying. So one has to get to the perception of the author through the text and not the opposite. And the opposite is, and you know that according to me, the serpent in Eden was Plato. I mean, the author was referring to Plato, that somehow Plato convinced all of us that there is an eternal logos, there is an idea that is expressed in words. No, my dear friends, you have only words, you have no ideas. Let's try it. While talking, say to someone, give me your idea about. That person is bound to use more than one word. He has to use sentences. But we imagine that there is an idea that I'm expressing. No, I'm using words to convey to you my thought. That is why to begin with theology, like in the beginning was the word, which is Jesus Christ. It is not Jesus Christ in John 1.1. How many times I repeat saying that in the Vulgate in Latin, the term word is neuter. So in verse 2, in the Vulgate, we have it was since the beginning, not he, as we have in translations. Again, I hope you're not going to ask me questions about that. It's an example that I'm giving that shows us that theology and philosophy is a presupposition. That's why I keep reminding the people that soul, the soul of the human beings, you know, which is a common name. Everybody uses it. And yet you can never prove it. It's an assumption on your part. It's an eternal idea. Now, can I prove to you that Goliath is Alexander or the serpent is Plato? Prove in which sense? <laughs> That's the key issue. Prove in which sense. Did the author say that it is Plato? Well, in literature, people don't write like this. Even in editorials, in politics, people play around the words and point to someone. This is how I would view the issue, not of Palash, Palash per se, but of the Philistines. The very first words of the book, looking at Hosea, which everyone translates the word of the Lord that were given to Hosea, the son of Barry, right? And they use these names. But if you look at them instead of names, but as nouns, then it was the word of Yahweh unto salvation, the son of my well. You are touching my heart here. That's why I liked your book from the first two paragraphs. Don't tell anyone that I said that. I didn't need to read the rest because you should be allowed to say what you want to say, not to please me. But I was very pleased when I read this. It was according to my evdokia. Good pleasure. <laughs> that is 
an excellent example. The same, by the way, applies, and I mentioned this in my commentary on Ezekiel, the son of Buzai. It's from the verb that reflects the exile and captivity. And more importantly, the shame that is expressed through captivity. Son of shame. Another parallel example. You see, you brought up an example in Hosea. I immediately brought up an example from Ezekiel. And you and I know how Hosea and Ezekiel are first cousins. But thank you very much for the example. It is exactly on the dot. For possession, usually you use the preposition lamed for possession. But this one, it doesn't use lamed. It uses the full preposition el, which sounds more like unto and actually, I think, is even a little harder to interpret as possession to a person when it's using el instead of just the la. The word of the Lord that came and you're saying unto Hosea and not to. In other right. words, the original is using a more powerful preposition. That's just for the sake of the hearers. Yes. Right. Thank you, Father. I remember when I was studying in my PhD program, Northwest Semitic epigraphy. So we looked at the different inscriptions and things that were found during the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the ones that were in Semitic languages. And one that was presented to us was, as scholars said, Philistine, because it came from cities that were noted to be Philistine cities. And they were from a period when the Philistines supposedly were there, but they were in a Semitic language. And the question that I never got over was these are supposed to be sea peoples coming from the Mediterranean, and now within two generations, they're speaking a Semitic language. How did this happen so quickly? Everyone talks about the origins of the Philistines as being Mediterranean, and that's so important. But then when you actually see the inscription, it's a Semitic language that's very closely related to Hebrew and Phoenician and the closely related dialects of the area. So how would you interpret that piece of data vis-a-vis -vis the literary context that the Bible presents, which, you know, has its own relationship to historical realia? Well, first of all, in scripture, you have one language. Everybody speaks one language, even when you say they spoke Aramaic and so on, but you are rendering it in a given language. Even God speaks scriptural Hebrew and so on. Now, I open actually out of curiosity, I googled the Philistine language. It's a ridiculous article on Wikipedia because they are jumping all over the place. It's not sure we have only two words here. And so on. Uh, according to me, you answered that these people living there were speaking, let's forget about Hebrew and so on, as I mentioned, the book, a Semitic language. So people were living in that area, and you have bits and pieces of language, but you don't have, you know, in the discoveries, unless you discover a long text with a story like Ugaritic literature. It's just presuppositions. That's all I can say. I don't have all the details, but until now, no one came up with something that would convince me of the opposite. Regarding this, again, you know, I have to answer from the same purview, even when you ask me a specific question. Like in my book, I say Ugaritic. It's not that we knew Ugaritic. We didn't know Ugaritic until we discovered the Ugaritic literature, and then we figured out the Ugaritic language. I use this to show the people that to speak about the Hebrew of the Bible as being concocted by the authors is not imaginary. Yes, we have the Yiddish and the Esperanto nowadays. 
So bits and pieces of examples on a pot shirt or on a stone and so on does not prove much except the larger family of languages in the area. Let me go back to Ugaritic after it was discovered. Many people said Ugaritic is much closer to Arabic than it is to Hebrew. Oh, it can't be. I said, why not? So I would propose that anything, and in my book I refer, you know, proto-Sinaitic, Sinaitic, you could see the scholars start referring to a language geographically where a certain phrase or section was discovered. But for me, it doesn't matter if it is from the same background, like the Hebrew, the Arabic, the Syriac, the Aramaic, and we know that, you know, once you know one of these languages, you can learn the others very easily. It's the same conjugation and so on and so forth. So that's the way I would answer, unless one comes with a solid piece of literature to prove that there is a language standing on its own and different, then you're just assuming. Why? Because one, as you yourself said, assumes that they came from the sea and then suddenly in no time they are speaking a Semitic language. This militates for my thesis, not against it. This has been a great discussion, Father Paul. Very much appreciate, as always, your time. Yes, thank you very much, Father. Always surprising. I think we always go in with some level of expectation because we've been studying with you for so many years, but you always manage to take a different angle and make us think a little bit harder. So we appreciate it, and we're looking forward to the next episode. And it's yeah. always good to hear your voice, Father. Thank you. Thank you very much. By the way, as an extra comment bonus, I won't charge you for that. <laughs> is that the first mention of nations living in the land of the promise before the one with the ten nations, the most comprehensive, which is found in Genesis fifteen nineteen to 21, which I referred to, immediately preceding, and this I discussed in my book, is in Genesis thirteen seven. at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. Anyone who's attuned to literature would realize that these two names function as representative of the entire set of nations that would be mentioned in detail in 15. But the interesting thing is the choice of these two Canaanites, obviously, because the land, that piece of earth in scripture is referred to as Canaan. But the Perizzites that are non-functional, you don't read a story of the Perizzites the way you would read about the Philistines or the Babylonians and so on. But then if you know the original, you are immediately struck with the root of the verb, paraz, allot. Remember the allotment in Joshua, to divide, to spread, and thus it reflects shepherdism. That's why way into Joshua we read that not all the nations were destroyed, and more importantly, which I mention in Joshua and again in my book, The Rise of Scripture, that not only the remainder of the nations lived among the Israelites, it is as though they were hosts of the Israelites, which were the proprietors of the land, but at one junction, we hear that the Israelites until this day live among the surrounding nations. 
In other words, you just are what you are in the open as the sheep in a flock in the open land. It's a jump, but I thought if we have time, I could add that. But for me, it's a jump compared to the original topic. But I hope I showed you that every little thing is important for the big theme of Scripture. Why these two names, Canaanites and Perizzites? You can do it yourself. Just ask anyone, why Perizzites out of all the names? Why not Hittites? Obviously, the answer, we were not with the authors, but still, we have to make the effort to figure out the reason behind their choice. Without a doubt. Thanks very much. Have a great day, gentlemen. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.